Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Bonus episode, Philip II and the Rise of Macedon. When I began this show almost a year and a half ago, in my mind, I envisioned the starting place for the podcast proper with the life of Alexander. I had ventured to give enough background details on the world and events that led up to the Macedonian conquest of the Persian Empire, largely because I had felt that Alexander's life had set the stage for so much of the Hellenistic period that we have covered so far. I must admit, perhaps it was due to my fondness for Alexander the Great that I skimmed over the extraordinary career of the man who was directly responsible for many of Alexander's achievements, Philip II, Alexander's father. It was he who took a backwards kingdom on the verge of collapse, and through a combination of superb generalship, shrewd diplomatic maneuvering, and brilliant reforms, turned it into the superpower that would eventually conquer much of the known world. In celebration of the podcast hitting 100,000 downloads, I thought I should say thank you by going back to the beginning and covering the life of Philip II, chronicling his meteoric rise and exemplary reign as King of Macedon. The man known as Philip II was born in the year 383-382 BC, son of the reigning king of Macedon, Amyntas III, and one of his many wives, Eurydice, a woman who was considered a forerunner to Olympias in terms of ambition. Prior to the 1970s, we had very little physical evidence on what Philip II actually looked like, apart from some descriptions of wounds he received in battle. The discovery and excavation of the Great Tumulus of Vergina in 1977 by the archaeologist Manolis Andronikos has provided an enormous bounty of information regarding the age of Philip II and Alexander the Great, among the most important being the recovery of what many scholars believe to be Philip's actual skeleton. It was determined to belong to Philip based upon several skeletal injuries that line up with those described by our primary sources, and an adjacent ivory carving from the period depicting him in his later years, and several reconstructions have been done to try and bring the king to life. From what can be gathered, Philip was able to cut a rather manly figure, possessing a grey bushy beard that contrasted heavily with his famously clean-shaven son, Alexander. And unlike Alexander, he was quite tall for the time, approximately 5'10 or 5'11. But in many respects, his hard living clearly took a toll on his physical well-being. While besieging the town of Methany, he took an arrow to his right eye and was blinded. And during a battle in 339, his left leg was hideously mangled by a spear, leaving him with a severe gait that is visibly apparent in the bones of his legs. He also was a notorious binge drinker, which actually seems to have been pretty standard for Macedonian kings, though he almost killed Alexander in a drunken rage while at his own wedding. Most of our information on Philip's career comes from the work of the Greek author Diodorus Siculus and his Library of History, and a universal history by Pompeius Trogus epitomized by Justin. Unfortunately, Plutarch does not seem to have written a biography on Philip himself, but he serves as a major character in those of his contemporaries, such as the lives of Phocion, Demosthenes, Pelopidas, and of course, Alexander. Looking at the prospects at the time, it is pretty remarkable that Philip even managed to reach the throne to begin with. After all, Philip was the third in line to the throne after his brothers Alexander and Perdiccas. But due to the practice of royal polygamy, Amyntas had children by other women as well, 
which would inevitably create problems regarding succession. And if there's anything we've learned on this show, it's that Macedonian royal politics were messy affairs. Even ignoring familial issues, Macedon itself was experiencing many stresses both internal and external. Though it had undergone a series of transformative changes during the reign of Archelaus I in the Peloponnesian War, there had been at least four kings from 399 down to Amyntas' accession in 393, all of them dying either in battle or through assassination. Amyntas had tried his best to remedy the predicament he found his kingdom in, thanks to a relatively long rule of 22 to 23 years, but evidence suggests he struggled financially to support his operations, despite pushing trade agreements with Athens that allowed him to reap some sort of income, and for the vast majority of its existence, Macedon was seen as a backwater by the Greeks, full of peasant goat herders who were barely more civilized than barbarians. As the fortunes of Macedon declined, their neighbors improved. One of these would be the Chalcidian League, an organized body led by the town of Olynthus in the Chalcidiches, just south of Macedon's borders. Initially, we have evidence of some sort of mutual understanding between Amyntas and the Olynthians, but the relationship had deteriorated over a number of years, leading to a declaration of war in the early 380s, and requiring the aid of the Spartans, who along with the rest of Greece saw Macedon as the junior partner in the relationship, but still endeavored to assist the Macedonian king against Olynthus, eventually forcing the city to surrender. Though Amyntas would temporarily dissolve the Chalcidian League by 379, there was an even more dangerous threat on his northwestern borders. In the region known as Illyria, roughly analogous to modern Albania, Montenegro, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, and Croatia, a man called Bartolus had led a campaign to unite Illyria under his banner in the late 5th century, founding the Kingdom of the Dardanians. The Illyrians were considered a barbarian people by the Greek-speaking world, but they were very well organized, and Bartolus was a gifted military commander and reformer in his own right, turning his fellow Illyrian warriors into a highly effective fighting machine, and put an enormous amount of pressure on both Macedon and her neighbor Epiros. Amyntas had just recently been defeated by Bartolus the same year as Philip's birth, and was forced to see territory and plunder to the Illyrians, and they would continue to be a major problem in the future. Philip's early youth would be chaotic. When Amyntas III died in the year 370-369, Philip's brother Alexander II was made king, but factional strife was instigated when a man named Ptolemy of Aloris, perhaps a rival family member, challenged Alexander for the throne. Ptolemy was apparently the lover of Eurydice, who allegedly was responsible for an earlier plot to kill Amyntas and back Ptolemy as a candidate against her own son. Alexander and the Macedonian nobility were outraged by this affair and requested external arbitration by the famous Theban commander Pelopidas. Pelopidas decided that Alexander was the legitimate successor, though to ensure good behavior and as payment for his services, Pelopidas demanded 30 political hostages to take back to Thebes, which also included Philip. Philip had already once been sent to the court of Bartolus as a hostage, though exactly when this was is still up to debate, and given his position as the youngest of three brothers, he was seen as more expendable so he would once again be shipped off from Macedon at the age of 14 to reside at Thebes. It may sound sad to ship off your younger son or brother hundreds of miles away, but in hindsight, it was probably for the best. Discord would return immediately as Pelopidas had left with the hostages, since Alexander II would be assassinated likely under Ptolemy's orders, and the secondborn Perdiccas would become Perdiccas III in 365 by killing Ptolemy in return. 
For three years, Philip would remain at Thebes, living in a velvet prison at the house of Pamenes, a very close friend to none other than Epaminondas, perhaps the most famous man in all of Greece at the time. Thebes itself was the leader of the Boeotian League, and was considered the dominant power on the Greek mainland thanks to his decisive victory over Sparta in the Battle of Leuctra in 371. Many attribute the engineering of Thebes' hegemony to Epaminondas, and traditionally he has been considered responsible for a number of military innovations, both tactical and logistical, that proved essential in the development of classical warfare. Philip was given an extensive education at Pamini's home, and was by all accounts interested in philosophy. However, above all the academic teachings that Philip would learn, none would be more important than his impressions he gathered from his time observing the disciplined and orderly armies under Epaminondas's command, which would greatly influence his own reforms and his understanding of the intricacies of the political life of the Greek polis, both of which he would utilize to profound effect during his reign. Now a young man at the age of 17, Philip returned home to Macedon to aid his newly crowned brother Perdiccas in 365, and was given the position as governor within the kingdom. The Macedonian borders were constantly being harassed by the various Thracian tribes to the northeast, and so Philip's military training was very useful as he managed to fend off attacks with considerable success over the next six years. However, the Illyrian threat reared its head once again and an invasion by Bartolus utterly destroyed the royal Macedonian army in early 359, killing Perdiccas and leaving the throne open for the taking. It was the kingdom's darkest hour, with multiple enemies closing in like wolves circling a wounded deer, ready to be finished off at any moment. With little else to turn to besides Perdiccas's underage son Amyntas, the Macedonian assembly immediately proclaimed Philip as their king. Little did they know, Philip would not only save the kingdom, but would bring it to its greatest height yet, and he would make sure that his enemies that stood in the way were going to regret it, one way or another. Upon his coronation, Philip was faced with multiple threats on multiple fronts. The most immediate was Bartolus's inevitable invasion of Macedon, and instead of throwing himself into another war with the Illyrians in the name of retribution, Philip instead bartered for peace by ceding territory, along with a marriage to one of Bartolus's granddaughters named Audata, the later mother and grandmother of the warlike Kynane and Eurydice II. The other threat was the tribes of Paeonia, who were raiding and pillaging along the Macedonian border until Philip had bought them off with gifts and treasure. With these potential crises averted, Philip now had to deal with the internal threats to his new rule. No less than three claimants were put forward by outside powers to push Philip off the throne. One was Pausanias, a distant cousin who was backed by the Adrician kingdom in Thrace, and another was the half-brother Archelaus, who was supported by the recently reunited Chalcidian League. Philip had provided further gifts and tribute to the Idrissian king, and so the Thracian had given up his support of Pausanias, who was probably assassinated shortly after. Archelaus was also assassinated, though Archelaus's brothers were able to escape to the protection of the Chalcidians and the city of Olynthus, much to the city's later detriment. The third was Argaeus, 
a son of a former usurper who was backed by the Athenian assembly because Perdiccas III had installed a Macedonian garrison in the former Athenian colony of Amphipolis. And so they provided Argeus with a 3,000-man force and planned to follow up with a naval invasion. Philip decided to abandon Amphipolis under the guise he was voluntarily submitting it to Athens to show his good faith, and the Athenians rescinded their invasion. This didn't seem to make much of a difference to Argeus, though, who tried encouraging the city of Agiae to hail their newly arrived king, but was pretty much ignored. While Argeus had made his rounds near the city of Methany with a small body of men, Philip ambushed and killed him, thus removing the last of the would-be usurpers. In less than a year, Philip had managed to give his kingdom considerable breathing room by using his talent for charm, bribery, and a keen sense of prioritization. One of the benefits of this extended peace was that Philip was able to not only rebuild his army after the disastrous battle against the Illyrians, but he was able to implement a series of reforms that would build upon the traditional hoplite phalanx and create the most effective fighting force in the Mediterranean and later Hellenistic world until the arrival of the Romans almost 200 years later. It must be clarified that there are rarely military revolutions in the strictest sense, whereby a single person is responsible for such a dramatic change in the way that entire nations would fight. It wasn't as if the Macedonians switched from a hoplite phalanx in the style of Leonidas and the Greco-Persian Wars to the fighting machine of Alexander the Great overnight. The phalanx had been gradually evolving over a number of centuries and decades prior to the reforms of Philip, with some people like Epaminondas experimenting with different tactics and formations, and the arms and the armor had changed along with the times as well. However, Philip was directly responsible for a number of innovations that radically improved the performance of the Macedonians, increasing the depth of his phalanx, ensuring his troops were extremely disciplined and carried their own supplies and equipment on forced marches instead of relying on a huge baggage train. These changes and the use of new equipment types such as the much longer sarissa and smaller shield had effectively established the Macedonian phalanx. Along with major improvements to siegecraft and intelligence and logistical networks that added incredible offensive capabilities to an army that was more than doubled from its original size from 10,000 to 25,000 in total. If anything could be called a military revolution, I certainly believe that this could qualify. One of the other key changes Philip had made in order to be able to pay for this new army was the exploitation of Macedon's natural resources. In a few years, Philip would manage to capture and improve several mining operations and begin to produce vast amounts of silver and gold, with Diodorus claiming that the Macedonian treasury was swollen with more than 1,000 talents per year from these mines alone. Using his gold supply to create a brand new gold coin, the Philippioi, which was continued extensively under Alexander and would heavily influence coin designs throughout Europe, but more importantly, it allowed Philip to use his newfound wealth to pay for mercenaries, his own armies, and for the use in building support in the Greek cities through generous bribing and gift-giving. These changes allowed for increased financial security when it came to foreign policy. However, his domestic reforms were not complete, and Philip still needed to rein in the dissident Macedonian nobility. Prior to Philip, the nobles had a level of power that often hindered or interfered with the practices of the kings, and this could lead to plots and threats to the safety of the king. What Philip did was secure himself with a number of loyal and talented men under his command, such as the general Parmenian, who was the only person that Philip felt he could truly trust, or the statesman Antipater, who could be relied upon for his diplomatic and administrative abilities. 
but he also directly curbed the power of the nobles by tying them more personally to his rule by taking their sons as sort of political hostages, who would be educated in the royal house and be raised as pages. And the bonds of loyalty between these youths and the royal family would form the basis of the bodyguard and Alexander's later companions. To test the mettle of his new army, Philip had decided to declare war upon the barbarians who tried to take advantage of the kingdom's weakness for so long. He crushed the Paeonians and incorporated their territory into northeastern Macedon and followed up with an invasion of some 10,000 Macedonian soldiers into Illyria. The battle was a disaster for Bartolus, as 7,000 of his own troops were killed and he had to cede all territory he had taken from Macedon in his past victories effectively reuniting Upper and Lower Macedon for the first time in several decades. It seems that his new way of war worked effectively against the barbarian tribes, but now he turned his attention back towards the Greek mainland. In 358, Philip interfered with the affairs of the region of Thessaly, as the cities of Larissa and Pharae had requested assistance against one another, but Philip decided to settle it with an alliance between himself and Larissa through a marriage to another wife, Philina, later the mother of the mentally disabled Philip Aridaeus. Thessaly was horse country, and would provide some of the finest cavalry in all of Greece for Philip's armies, so ensuring this region's loyalty and peace was absolutely critical. Another alliance was concluded with the Molossian kingdom of Epirus and its ruler Eribus, who gave his niece to Philip as a wife, the brilliant and incorrigible Myrtile, aka Olympias of Epirus. At this point, Philip now had four wives in less than two years, and he would have a grand total of seven by his death in 336. Some of this could be interpreted to a voracious sexual appetite on the part of Philip, as the number of wives was pretty unprecedented compared to earlier and later Macedonian kings, and Philip was more than willing to take lovers, both female and male, across his career. While the latter can be attributed to the difference in ideas regarding sexuality in ancient Macedonian culture, these marriages were above all else political, and there is a degree of truth to the claims of Athenius that, quote, Philip always married in connection to a war. Olympias was the most prominent of these wives, more than likely because of her giving birth to Alexander in 356, the first mentally competent royal heir for Philip, though there seems to be a strong literary tradition that the relationship between Philip and Olympias originally started out as a whirlwind romance before Olympias's ambition and penchant for scheming on the behalf of Alexander led to a falling out between the two. This telling is infinitely more juicy than a political match and mutual distrust between two partners, but Olympias's position was retained thanks to Alexander, and Philip probably never begrudged her for that. Though these marriage alliances were able to quickly and easily ensure peace with his immediate neighbor, Philip knew that to win over his next opponent, he was going to have to do better than just to take another wife. Philip may have given up Amphipolis to the Athenians to show his willingness to bend the knee, but the Athenians were very likely already planning another invasion to curb the Macedonian threat before it even started. And Philip certainly had no intention to let Amphipolis remain out of his grasp, especially since Athens was currently embroiled in the social war with many of its former allies. In 356, Philip took Amphipolis in a quick siege, though he treated the populace rather fairly in all accounts, and subsequently Athens declared war on Philip. But true to his clever nature, Philip preemptively bribed or convinced many of the parties that Athens sought to ally with against Macedon, namely the Thracians, Illyrians, and Paeonians, but also the people of Olynthus and the Chalcidian League, 
the last of whom Philip handed over the Athenian-controlled Patidea, though he had allowed the Athenian garrison and diplomats to return back to Athens as a gesture of goodwill. At the same time as the capture of Patidea, Philip was allegedly sent three messages, the first being Permenian's victory against a coalition of barbarians, the second that his horse took prize at the Olympics, and the third was the birth of Alexander the Great. Not a bad day, all things considered. Despite this outrageous affront to Athenian interests, there was little they could do with the social war dragging on for two years, and which cost the Athenian treasury an enormous amount of money. Meanwhile, Philip kept capitalizing on the lack of Athenian response by acting upon those gold and silver mines I mentioned earlier, along with subduing further regions of Thessaly, though in his siege of Methany, he was struck in the right eye by a stray arrow and was nearly killed. Once he had finally taken the city, he was relatively magnanimous towards its defenders, though he bulldozed the city walls and forced them to leave the region with just the clothes on their back. Just four years into his reign at the end of 355 BC, Philip had already shown himself to be one of the greatest kings Macedon ever had. Not only had he fended off the recent incursions from the outside barbarian kingdoms, but managed to utterly humiliate them in battle. His recent reforms had provided him with a fantastic military and economic base to draw upon, and had moved from a purely defensive strategy to an actively offensive one. The capture of Amphipolis was only the beginning, though and the Greeks to the south would not tolerate any slights from the quasi-barbarian kingdom, and Philip would not tolerate anything but the utter subjugation of all of Greece. It must be pointed out that Philip was not invulnerable to defeat, the Phocian general Onomarchus had managed to rout Philip's forces in a battle for Thessaly in 353, and the Macedonian king was forced to withdraw some of his territory, though Philip likened himself to a ram retreating to launch an even stronger headbutt. But during all of this, the region of Phocis had found itself embroiled in a major conflict known as the Third Sacred War. To simplify an extremely complicated event, it essentially boiled down to two sides. The first is what is known as the Amphictyonic League, a quasi-religious coalition of a number of Greek cities, mainly represented by Thebes, whose aims were to protect the sanctity of Delphi to their own benefit. The second being Phocis and a number of groups like Athens and Sparta, who sought to topple the Theban hegemony. Phocis was responsible for kicking off the war by plundering the sanctuary of Delphi in 356 to pay for mercenaries, to which Thebes responded in force. All of these greatly complicated the affairs of Greece, costing tremendous amounts of money and weakening the cities further due to a great loss of life. This all played perfectly in the hands of Philip, for though he had no direct involvement in the conflict, he was quote-unquote dragged into it because of his conflict with the city of Pharae, who were close allies with the Phocians. Feeling confident after their previous defeat of Philip, the Phocians sent Onomarchus to confront Philip at Crocus Fields in 352 but many of the native Thessalians had resented the tyrants who allied themselves with Pharae, and seeing Philip as a defender of their freedom, they provided him with a huge body of cavalry, which had proved decisive at what would be called the Battle of Crocus Fields, where 6,000 Phocian soldiers were killed and another 3,000 were slaughtered for their impiety. In one fell swoop, Philip's victory was an enormous propaganda boost. 
Not only did he have the moral high ground by placing himself as the defender of Apollo and the sanctuary of Delphi, but he had restored the confidence in his Macedonian soldiers and was granted the position of Archon in perpetuity of the Thessalian League. This cannot be understated. A king bordering on the edges of being a barbarian had now been inserted into the geopolitical landscape of Greece with a Greek office and as a protector of one of the most sacred sites in all of the mainland. Surprisingly, the sacred war would not end for another six years, but Philip's victory put immense pressure on the city of Athens, and many of its citizens understandably felt extremely concerned about this upstart king to the north. One of the leading anti-Macedonian figures was the firebrand Demosthenes, who was considered the greatest orator of his day and authored a series of speeches known as the Philippics, urging his fellow Athenians to join on his crusade against Philip and warned of the Macedonian silver tongue. Quote, but if anyone mistakes for peace an arrangement which will enable Philip, when he has seized everything else to march upon us, he has taken leave of his senses, and the peace that he talks of is one that you observe towards Philip, but not Philip towards you. That is the advantage which he is purchasing by all of his expenditure of money, that he should be at war with you, but that you should not be at war with him. If we are going to wait for him to acknowledge a state of war with us, we are indeed the simplest of mortals. For even if he marches straight against Attica and the Piraeus, he will not admit it, if we may judge from his treatment of the other states. End quote. These speeches would later inspire the writings of the Roman orator Cicero, considering his attacks on Mark Antony as Philippics in Demosthenes' honor. In one anecdote recorded by Plutarch, Demosthenes was part of a delegation visiting Philip's court, and when the king was declared the most eloquent speaker, the most handsomest man, and a superb drinker, the orator had snidely remarked that, quote, The first of these qualities was excellent for a sophist, the second for a woman, and the third for a sponge, but none of them for a king. End quote. While not aggressively pursuing a total war as Demosthenes clamored for, Athens went on the offensive by funding a number of anti-Macedonian movements in places like Thrace and Olynthus with troops and money, but to little success. The Thracians were kowtowed into submission once again, and as punishment for Olynthus's betrayal, and very likely because of their protection of his traitorous half-brothers, he had razed the city down to its foundations, never to be resettled again. By 348, the Chalcidiches now belonged to Philip entirely, and he even had time to invade the neighboring Epiros and remove King Aribas from the throne of Molossia. The speed and scale at which Philip conducted his operations and invasions was truly terrifying to his enemies, something which Alexander would take full advantage of during his own career. As 346 approached, the end of the Third Sacred War had likely compelled Philip to reconsider a reprisal against Athens, and instead proposed a peace which Demosthenes furiously rejected. The Phocians had still not given up, and Thebes requested assistance from Macedon in the form of loaned military forces. But Philip had no interest in allowing the Thebans to take the glory of ending the sacred war, nor could he allow the war to end so as to let the Greek cities regain their strength. In his own interests, a meeting took place at the court of Pella in April of 346, attended by a number of delegations, including a ten-man group of Athenians, the most important of which was the pro-Philip Eschines, the negotiator Philocrates, and of course Demosthenes. Philip was away on campaign in Thrace, and it appears that the delegates had spent most of their time during the king's delays by infighting, much of it between Demosthenes and Eschines. But a number of grievances were laid out between Athens and Macedon, 
primarily Athens backing numerous revolts and potential rivals to Philip's kingdom, in contrast to Philip seizing Amphipolis and Olynthus, along with the holding of Athenian prisoners. This back and forth between the delegations had served the king's needs well, since the Thracian campaign had successfully concluded, and Philip was eager to bring his army down into Greece and end the sacred war, mainly by seizing the pass of Thermopylae, which he had been repeatedly barred from entering by the Athenians and the Spartans. What would be known as the Peace of Philocrates would be ratified during that summer, infuriating Demosthenes and many other Athenians who believed they had been robbed by delegates who were too eager to appease Philip. In return for the cessation of hostilities between Macedon and Athens only, Philip would free the Athenian prisoners taken at Olynthus and not destroy the Athenian colonies in Thrace, whereas Athens had to give up claims to Amphipolis and recognize all of Philip's conquests thus far which was clearly a lopsided treaty at best. A couple more embassies had been arranged to elucidate further on the exact meaning of the Peace of Philocrates, but to the shock and terror of the Athenians, and later the rest of the Greek world, their last embassy would never make it to Philip. The news came out that the Phocians had completely surrendered to Philip personally without a fight that July, and he had possessed Thermopylae, leaving central Greece open to the possibility of further Macedonian expansion. To appease Philip further, they had granted him the official position on the Amphictyonic Council, and had him take part in deciding the fate of the Phocians. Philip opted to be moderate, probably as part of an earlier deal which he arranged with the Phocians when they first submitted to him, and refused to let all of the male Phocians be thrown from the cliffs for their impiety, as per the wishes of the other Greek cities. He was also given the prestigious positions on the councils for the Olympic and Pythian Games, actually becoming the president of the former, and to rub salt in the wound for Athens for their support of Phocis, the Athenians had lost their VIP status when looking to consult the Oracle of Delphi. Of course, it is highly unlikely that such a one-sided arrangement would lead to lasting peace, and I am sure that Philip was fully aware of this as well. But he did seem to genuinely try to keep the peace as best as he could, so long as it was in his best interest. For the next few years, he had busied himself with the affairs of Macedon, spending time consolidating his newfound territories. He planted a number of colonies in newly conquered Thrace, which more than doubled the size of his kingdom. And in a similar manner to Romulus, Philip populated them with criminals and prisoners of war. This allowed him to put insubordinates to use by acting as an initial buffer to any attempted attacks through the Thracian borders. And the last vestiges of Thessalian resistance were also quelled by the expulsion of its political upstarts and subsequent reorganization of its administration. During the latter half of the 340s, the tensions between the Macedonians and the Greeks remained entirely apparent, and the peace of Philocrates broke down bit by bit. For one thing, the architect of the peace, Philocrates, was driven from Athens out of fear of execution in 343, and the Athenians were caught negotiating some sort of deal with the Persian king Artaxerxes III, who had been watching the affairs with Greece with vested interest, and probably out of deep concern. Artaxerxes would try to funnel resources to the Greek cities as per Persian policy to keep the Greeks divided in a constant state of war, supplying the city of Byzantium outright during its siege by Philip, though eventually Philip and Artaxerxes would both sign a non-aggression pact with one another. But the Athenians' attempt at gathering support from Persia was the final straw for Philip, and in 340, the king had personally declared war against Athens by seizing their grain shipments and nearly burned down the Athenian fleet while it was still docked in the Piraeus. And in symbolic response, the Athenians smashed the stone on which the Peace of Philocrates was inscribed. 
the final war for the mastery of Greece had arrived. In the spring of 340, initial prospects for the Athenians looked grim. The ability of Philip to masterfully portray himself as the righteous party had resulted in Athens appearing as the aggressor, and very few cities actually stood against Philip. As part of a controversy between Athens and the city of Amphissa regarding mutual charges of sacrilege, Philip had been declared the commander of the Amphictyonic League while campaigning in Scythia, now providing him the full opportunity to march against the Athenians with the League behind him. That is, all but the Thebans, who had refused to heed the call of Philip. Plutarch recounts how Demosthenes, in spite of multiple anti-Athenian delegates, kindled the courage of the Thebans through his way with words. Though, in all honesty, the Thebans had probably resented Philip's usurpation of their hegemony and did not trust the Macedonian king's intentions. Philip had already launched a lightning campaign late in 339 before the Athenians were even aware of the situation, with the Macedonians having encamped within a hundred miles of Athens itself. The reason that the king hadn't progressed further was largely out of concern on whether or not he could fully trust Thebes, and he spent considerable time trying to negotiate their loyalty, thus leading to the event involving Demosthenes and the subsequent alliance between Thebes and Athens. This was understandably concerning for Philip, because Thebes was still a first-rate military power, capable of fielding over 10,000 of the finest soldiers in all of Greece, including the Sacred Band, a professional and extremely disciplined unit of 300 men formed into 150 pairs of lovers, operating under the supposition that they would fight harder knowing that their significant others were at direct risk in the battle. But when Philip had learned of the alliance between Thebes and Athens, it was already winter, and neither side could launch a decisive attack. Instead, each would prepare their armies over the next several months. Philip would continue to try and coax the Thebans into peace, and the Athenians would give command to Caries of Athens and Proxenus of Thebes to guard the Pass of Thermopylae, as the previous Macedonian garrison had been thrown out by a Theban force. According to Polyinus, Philip was able to trick Caries and Proxenus by purposefully sending out a letter to Parmenion, and knowing that it would be intercepted, he falsely claimed that he was planning to move out of the region. For whatever reason, they fell for this ruse, and so, they lowered the guard at Thermopylae before Philip quickly swept in and took it again. After months of stalling, the two armies had decided that enough was enough, and so, in August of 338, both had lined up on the plains near the village of Caronea in the region of Boeotia. Philip's forces would be comprised of at least 30,000 infantry, 24,000 of them being Macedonian phalangites forming the main line of phalanxes, and the rest belonging to various light infantry roles filled by subject populations across Philip's empire. The Macedonian cavalry was about 2,000 in number, and would be commanded by the crown prince Alexander on the left wing of the army. Opposing him would be the combined efforts of Athens, Thebes, and a few additional allied states, headed by Caries and another general Lysias. Our sources disagree on the exact size of the anti-Philip coalition, though the Athenians supplied somewhere between 10 to 15,000 troops and mercenaries, called forth from all ages to fight against Philip. Even Demosthenes would put his money where his mouth was, and stood in the line of hoplites, bearing a shield which he specially had decorated with the expression, with good fortune, in gold lettering. The Thebans would comprise the strongest and most experienced part of the Greek force, supplying about 12,000 troops along with the sacred band on the right wing. 
This force would be bolstered by an additional few thousand of various allied contingents, making the total number equal in size to the Macedonian army, if not larger. At dawn, both armies marched down the plain. It was almost poetic. The line of Philip, stretching almost two kilometers in tight orderly formation, bristled with row upon row with pikes and spears of the Macedonian phalanx, demonstrating the new way that wars would be fought for the next several centuries, while the old guard of the traditional powers Thebes and Athens stood abreast in the classical hoplite formation in bleak defiance. Philip had begun the battle by marching his army towards the Greeks, not head-on, but rather at an angle, as to make contact with the Greek line with an oblique body of troops. Once he was in near-killing range of the Athenian army, his right line of infantry was ordered to halt, then begin to slowly retreat backwards without giving way. This is a testament to the ridiculous level of discipline required on the part of the Macedonian army to not charge, which was not the case for the Athenians, who were compelled to chase after the Macedonians in the mistaken belief that Philip's army was running away. When Philip had reached a suitable position after nearly 30 minutes of marching backwards, the entire line halted and crashed with the Athenians almost all at the same time. The eager rush of the Athenians had suddenly opened a gap in the formations of the Greeks, and the trap was sprung. Alexander and the rest of the Macedonian cavalry had crashed into the left wing of the Theban army, disrupting operations there, and Philip had pressed forward with a body of infantry that closed in on the Athenian line. The Athenians and the other allies were soon cornered, then panicked, and then completely broke as a thousand were killed and another two thousand were captured. The rout was so severe that Demosthenes tossed his weapons and inscribed shield upon the ground to escape the slaughter. So much for good fortune. The Thebans, being the more disciplined of the bunch, remained steadfast in combat with the Macedonian infantry and did not leave rank as did the Athenians. Brave as it was, this proved to be a fatal mistake. The cavalry of Alexander had managed to swing around the left wing of the Theban army like a hinged door, trapping the bulk of the Theban infantry and the sacred band with no hope for escape, only slaughter. In March of 2019, I had the privilege to watch a presentation by Professor Maria A. Liston, revealing her finds about the recovered skeletons of the sacred band, who were all cut down to a man. The remains provided visceral evidence of the massacre by the Macedonian cavalry. Teeth and faces caved in, a deep hole drilled into the top of the cranium, limbs hacked off, just to name a few. As the last of the surviving Thebans either fled or were systematically killed in the fighting, the field belonged to the Macedonians, who absolutely crushed the Greek army in a masterful display of tactical brilliance on the part of mainly Philip, but also of Alexander, who fought bravely at the head of the cavalry. It is said that in the midst of the revelry and celebrations after the battle, Philip walked among the bodies of the Thebans, whom he had left to rot in the heat of the Mediterranean sun for a few days as punishment for their betrayal. And when he came upon the massed pile of the sacred band, he began to weep and ordered their subsequent burial with honors, which was marked by a lion monument dedicated to Philip's victory and the bravery of the sacred band. That's one version of the story, the rest having Philip being less melodramatic and more arrogant in his dealings with the defeated, and he still charged Thebes for the recovery of the other dead. With the victory of Chaeronea in 338, Philip was now the undisputed lord of Greece, and for the first time in its history, it was united, albeit under a Macedonian kingship, as it would remain so until the end of the Third Roman-Macedonian War almost 200 years later. Thebes was installed with a Macedonian garrison and a new political regime so as it could never rise up again, 
but Athens was treated rather cordially despite its constant attempts to undermine Philip. In 337, a great summit was called between the various powers of the Greek mainland at the city of Corinth, as Philip would express his wish for a united Greece and a universal peace between its peoples. What would become known as the League of Corinth was built under the pretension that the Greek cities would be free and autonomous, with the catch being that it would be headed by a general, a strategos, who would of course be Philip of Macedon. This drew upon the memories of the famous league formed by some of the city-states of Greece in response to the invasion of Xerxes. From this, and out of fear of military reprisal on Macedon's part, almost every Greek city was brought into the fold except for Sparta, which was subsequently reduced to a fraction of its former power, even if Philip did not directly invade them. With the resources of the Greek mainland and the most well-trained and hardened military force in the world, Philip had now set his sights for an empire beyond Europe, the prime target being the Achaemenid Empire of Persia, an invasion that Philip had been formulating and planning for a number of years, but now was finally within his grasp. But it was not meant to be. In 336, at the age of 46, Philip would be assassinated by a disgruntled bodyguard named Pausanias, and his son, Alexander the Great, would immediately be proclaimed King of Macedon and Strategos of the League of Corinth. The rest of the story, I'm sure you're quite familiar with. The reign of King Philip, lasting 24 years, was one of the most pivotal events of the ancient world. His career is nothing short of spectacular. Not only had he prevented Macedon from falling apart due to civil war and invasion, but he managed to revolutionize warfare and build a European empire upon which Alexander would launch the greatest military conquest in history up to that point, thus giving birth to the Hellenistic world. He was able to unite the Greek mainland through superior generalship and especially through diplomacy and realpolitik, and as such, he was not opposed to cold, calculating pragmatism when it came to his foreign and domestic policy. In the eyes of the ancient world and the modern one too, Philip was always overshadowed by the feats of his son. In my opinion, Philip's absence in Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans was one of the biographer's great omissions, along with Scipio Africanus, and men such as Demosthenes had blackened Philip's reputation with his legendary Philippics, which were studied for centuries by students of Greek into the modern era. The author Diodorus Siculus has clear praise for Philip, quote, and these deeds he accomplished, not by the favor of fortune, but by his own valor. For King Philip excelled in shrewdness in the art of war, courage, and brilliance of personality. He is known to fame as one who, with but the slenderest resources to support his claim to a throne won for himself, the greatest empire in the Greek world. While the growth of his position was not due so much to his prowess in arms as to his adroitness and cordiality in his diplomacy. End quote. Philip's memory was held extremely sacred long after his death by the troops who served under him. In the account of Arian, Alexander shamed the mutinous Macedonians at Opus by recalling the deeds of Philip. Quote, Philip, my father, who took you up when you were helpless wanderers, most of you dressed in skins, pasturing a few flocks in the mountains. He gave you cloaks to wear instead of skins, led you down from the mountains to the plains, he made you city dwellers, and by means of laws and good customs, gave you an orderly way of life. End quote. While I still prefer to read and learn about the larger-than-life deeds of Alexander, it cannot be denied that it was Philip who had built so much of what Alexander utilized in his later conquests, who even allowed the opportunity for his son to become one of the most famous figures in all of human history. 
it is quite the understatement to say that without Philip, there would be no Alexander the Great. If you are looking for any modern biographies covering the life of Philip II, I encourage you to check out either Ian Worthington's Taken by the Spear or Richard A. Gabriel's Philip II of Macedonia, Greater than Alexander, both of which I drew heavily on during the research for this episode. The most comprehensive ancient account of Philip's life is in Book 16 of Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, which has recently been released in a nice collection from Oxford World Classics, along with the books covering Alexander's life and the Wars of the Diadochoi, so I encourage you to check that out as well. Once again, thank you so much for the support, and though 100,000 downloads may seem like an arbitrary checkpoint, it does mean a lot to me that you seem to be enjoying the show as much as I enjoy making it. So, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.